Now, if you will, grab your Bibles and let me read to you out of the book of Job. Uh, we've got, I hope I haven't worn out my welcome with Job. Um, but we've got two more after today, so just kind of bear with me. Today and two more and we're done with Job. So, Job chapter 38, I want to begin reading at verse 19, which is really where we left off the last time we were in Job. I, I read the first 18 verses. We're going to read the second half of the chapter Beginning in verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may be able, uh, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew, from whom, from whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth Nazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick fast, the clouds stick fast together. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. Do you know what I've just read you? <laughs> it really opened in verse 1 of chapter 38. But this is God calling Job up short. In chapter 38, verse 1, there's a series of, of, of approximately 64 questions. 64 questions that God puts to Job in, a, in the process of answering all of the questions that he's been asking for the first 37 chapters. Now, whereas it is true that God does not directly answer the question, the exact question that Job is asking, Job has asked numerous questions. Predominantly, why? Related to that, how long? 
And, and, and it is true that God has not directly answered that question. But having said that, that is not to say in the least that he doesn't answer. Oh, he answers all right. Um, God answers, he gives an answer both now and, and he's going to give one later. And that's going to be the two headings of, of, of the two points of my sermon this morning. That is, the, the, the answer that he gives now and the answer that he gives later. But at both instances, the answer is the same. His answer is himself. He points to himself. He offers himself as the answer to all of Job's questions. Two or three weeks ago when we looked at this text, chapter 38 before, I told you that this was a theophany. It's a big word. It's a big churchy word. Theophany simply means an appearance of God. What you have in these closing five chapters of the book of Job is a close encounter with God. God appears out of nowhere and and takes center stage to have the last word. He breaks the silence with an answer. But unfortunately, his answer is not is not of real interest to a whole lot of people. You know, when I was in college, um, I mean, this was in the '60s now, and I was in the College of Business, and I was a I was not a Christian, and and um, and I don't well. Back then, we sat in school desks. Um, you know, wooden school desks with a little flat, you know, we, we, I don't know what they sit in now. They may sit in spacesuits for all I know. I, I don't know where they sit. But we sat in wooden school desks. And, and, and I remember in one class I had, I sat in a particular desk and somebody had scrawled into the top of the desk, Jesus is the answer. And then some pundit had come in behind them and, and also scrawled in the desk, what's the question? Well, what is the question, ladies and gentlemen? What is the question that Job is asking? Is it only about suffering? Well, he certainly asks, he's asking about his suffering, indeed. But is that all he's asking? Is there not, is he not concerned about his whole place in the universe? Does he not, does he not want to know, to whom do I belong? To whom do I answer? Who do I answer to? Now, ladies and gentlemen, if if those questions, including the suffering one, if if if, if those are questions that that you uh, are asking along with Job, then here's your answer. In a word, God. Now, let me explain that. Let me explain why I'm what I'm what I'm saying, or at least I want to tell you why I say that the answer is God. Three things I want you to see. Three things out of this text. Well, more than that. <laughs> First of all, guys, I want you to notice a name change. 
Did you notice that chapter 38, verse 1, is now talking about the Lord? If you've got your Bible still open, look with me um, in chapter 36, verse 22. Behold God. Uh, 36, 26. Behold, God is great. Um, chapter 37, verse 5. God thunders. 37, 10. By the breath of God. I, uh, verse... Um, uh, verse 22 out of 37, God is clothed with awesome and awesome majesty. God, God, and, and almost solely the word that is used in the other 37 chapters is the name Elohim, God. We come to chapter 38 and all of a sudden there's a name change. There's a name shift. Now it's not God anymore, it's Yahweh. This is a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. Because now the conversation has moved from the academic to the relational. Yahweh is God's relational name. It's his covenant name. It's the name that he uses to describe his relationship with his people. To the universe, to the world, he's God. But to his people, he's Yahweh. And so God has drawn near to one of his people... And is going to talk about the relationship that exists between them. To do that, secondly, he, he takes Job to the earth's beginning. He, he appeals to the, that is, God appeals to the created world, the wonders and the immensities of the natural world. In this section, ladies and gentlemen, God claims for himself the role of creator. I, I know that some of you have problems with that. I'm simply telling you that in this text, God claims the rights of the creator. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, this poetry is elegant. The images that are contained in these chapters are absolutely masterful. Let me just mention four or five. Verse 9 of 38. He says, in essence, I wrapped the vast expanses of the world the way a midwife wraps a newborn in swaddling clothes. Uh, verse 12. Dawn arrives according to my alarm clock. Verse 24, light goes where I send it. Verse 35, lightning bolts report to me. Do they report to you? The sea, the weather, the light, darkness, animals... Their creator has just showed up. You know, guys, I got a dog. Eva the Wonder Dog. Um, I, I got to tell you how Eva got her name. Um, Eva is a golden retriever, and she was, um, she was hit by a car on December 24th, Christmas Eve night, of 2010, and she was left on the side of the road to die on Christmas Eve. Some good Samaritan found the dog, 
took the dog to um, a, an emergency room vet clinic, and through a series of veterinarians, including one of our own, they put Eva back together. Um, our dog, our previous dog, had been run over and killed in Johnson Road in April of 2011. And we almost immediately started looking for another dog. And this agency that we use, it's a rescue agency, pointed us, they wanted us to have this dog. A dog that they had named Eva Grace. Now, gang, in case you don't get that, if you will put an N on the Eva and reverse the words, you've got Grace Ivan. So we kind of figured that dog was for us. But but we had adopted that dog, whatever you do, paid for the dog, whatever. Um, but I, for whatever reason, that dog is terribly attached to me. I, I've never had a dog that was this attached to me over my wife. I mean, she is a, she's very fond of me, and she that's all fine, and I enjoy that, except in the mornings. In the mornings when I'm out on the back porch and I'm trying to spend some time with God and and, I mean, she will drive you crazy. You know, she's um, she wants to play. She just got up. She's having a good time. And she'll get her ball, and she'll bring her ball over and drop it in my lap. And, and she'll come, and she'll, she'll lay her head right in my lap and then look over at me and with her little brown eyes. And, and, and finally, on several occasions, I've had to say to that dog, go away. Leave me alone. I am spending some time with our Creator. And I'm telling you, amazingly, that dog seems to understand that. She turns around, she goes and lays down, and that's the last I hear of her. Now, guys, I say that to say this. I would like to say the same thing to you, without the go away and leave me alone part. I'd like to say this. Through this text... We are spending some time with our Creator. We don't do that much. And because we don't do it very much, life pounds us with its riddles and its enigmas and its mysteries. And we end up as confused and as bewildered as is Job. then God shows up. He shows up for Job to answer Job's question. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, the answer is him. He doesn't address directly what Job is asking. He just shows up. And and by his so doing... All of my questions are forgotten when he arrives. It's like all of those things that used to be so troubling. They're gone. Because now, they're all lost.
Now, third thing I want you to see. Again, do you get the point of all the 64 questions that he he pummels Job with? Do you get the point here? What, What God is doing is saying, how much you know, how much do you know, Job, compared to me? You know, guys, if I were a um, seasoned, veteran, esteemed civil engineer, and, and, and I built a bridge across the Mississippi River, and, and I was standing at the mouth of my new bridge, and we're about to open it up for the first day to through traffic and all of the dignitaries that arrived, and I've got the scissors in my hand, and I'm going to cut the ribbon to open up the bridge that I just designed and built across the Mississippi. And right before I did that, if a little five-year-old boy was to walk up to me and say, uh, Hey, mister, that bridge is going to collapse under the weight of the first 18-wheeler that rolls on it. What do you say to somebody like that? Do you try to explain yourself? Or do you just look at him and say, Son... Sit down and shut up. You've got a major knowledge problem. That is what Job is doing here. God is doing with Job here. He, in essence, turns to Job and says, Sit down and shut up. You've got a major knowledge problem, son. God would have us to have a God-sized God. A God who loves to identify himself as Yahweh. The one with whom I am in a relationship. Guys, the point of all of this, the application at least, is this. Listen, if I knew everything that God knew, I tell you what, let me change that. If God is in essence saying, Son, if you knew everything that I know, and you saw everything that I see, you would be completely on board with how I'm writing the story of your life. You've got a major knowledge problem. So sit down and shut up. Your creator just arrived. All of our questions get swallowed up in his immensity. That's God answers Job's questions. Let me try one more time. I want to make this as simple as if we were sitting around a kitchen table drinking a cup of coffee. Guys, in the midst of our suffering... What does God do? Well, anyone who can tell you, anyone who's ever suffered can tell you 
that he doesn't necessarily answer my questions. But in the midst of my asking them, I find myself mysteriously being drawn to him. I find that I want more of him. My Bible becomes more precious to me. And some of the foolishnesses that are in my life, they get replaced by an, with, a, with an appetite for God. My brother and sister in Christ, do you understand? That is the point behind your pain. We have frittered a life away. And so God creates a set of circumstances that really arouse our attention. And though he might not answer your questions, he shows up himself. And then I forget the questions. The answer is himself. Now guys, that's that's first half. That's what he does now for Job. But let me show you what he does later. It's the same thing. You see, Job had more questions than just about his suffering. Job was also concerned about who do I who do I belong to? Who do I report to? I mean, to, to whom to, to to whom do I answer? And so later on, much later on, God will do the same thing as he did in these last five chapters of Job. He will show up. God's answer here was himself. But God's answer later, much later, way after Job, will also be himself. He showed up here, and he showed up later in the person of another innocent sufferer. The, the, whose name is Jesus, who is, the, who is the Job of the New Testament. But his story, that is Jesus' story, would play out much differently than did Job's. And by no means am I saying that Job at this point understand all that God, <coughs> pardon me, all that God would pull off. But he has some questions about it. Job doesn't understand at this point all of the all of the beauties of grace. And yet in his heart of hearts he knows that God still has something up his sleeve. That if there is ever to be an answer to his other questions, he's going to have to come and explain himself. Just like he did here. He's going to have to do it again. Which is exactly what God does do 
later in the New Testament. Job, troubled with his suffering, yes, but also confused with some more questions. Job is betting all of his marbles on what poets call the deus ex machina. Have you ever heard that, that phrase, the deus ex machina? It's a, it's a Latin phrase which means God out of the machine. It really came out of uh, Roman um, uh, poetry and drama. Uh, Horace, who was the poet laureate of the Roman Empire, Horace would tell the poets and the playwrights that they must not resort to pulling a rabbit out of the hat in resolving all the entanglements of their plots. That they could not depend on a resolution of all the difficulties of their plots um, by, by pulling a rabbit out of the hat. A deus ex machina. Um, they, they, they would paint themselves into a corner and then they would, they would give this unusual, unbelievable, improbable solution. And Horace said, you must not do that. And yet that's exactly what God does. God provides a solution that is so improbable so unpredictable, so unimaginable that only God could have come up with it. He provides an innocent sufferer who will die in the place of guilty sufferers. He will show up as one who is altogether innocent and will die in the place of people who are altogether guilty. And only Job had a God big enough to pull something like that off. He doesn't know all the details, but he's betting all his marbles that God is going to do something that improbable, that unimaginable, that unpredictable. You know, guys, I don't know whether you've figured this out yet, but in the book of Job, those three friends, you know, that we talked about, Job's three friends, those three friends are not in this story to be examples of insensitivity. Those three friends are in this story to be the representatives of a false gospel. The only solution they ever dreamed of was what I've called in the past a cause and effect religion. That is, you do this, you get that. You don't do this, you get that. And so for Job to reject that and keep insisting on this this, this other plot twist. His three friends considered that reckless and irresponsible and ludicrous. It was the thing that made them the most incensed against Job. And by the way, it was the same attitude that Jesus faced when he ultimately showed up. The, the, the whole idea that, that God himself in person would pay a visit to planet Earth. <laughs> That's out of the question. 
By the way, modern people don't like that solution either. And yet, just as in these closing chapters of the book of Job, much later, all the way over here in the New Testament, the Lord would show up and he would pay planet Earth a spectacular visit, bringing with him just a foretaste of the glories of his kingdom. But the purpose of this visit would not be to discuss creation. This visit would end up on a cross. Our innocent sufferer dying in the place of guilty sufferers. And Job, and, and maybe Elihu, but, but Job had an inkling that God was going to pull something off that unexpected. He had a sense that if his sin was ultimately to be dealt with, God would have to do it. He knew that his sin was so expensive that only God could figure this out. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the only people who don't like that story of Jesus and dying in our place, they're people like Job's three friends. They're people who, who believe that if you live good, you get rewarded. But if you live bad, you get condemned. Back in the middle of June, Susie and I were in Louisville, Kentucky for a church meeting, you know, and I, uh, I go to this church meeting every year. And as is our custom, uh, whenever we're out of town, we got to do some shopping. <laughs> she wouldn't go with me, you know. Um, so we, um, we did a little bit of shopping, and Susie found this antique store. And it was a funky little place, and it was a, it was a, it was a nice place. It had some stuff in there that I'd never seen before, you know. It's neat, neat, but anyway, I'm not interested either. I mean, I'm just there as the driver. And, um, and while Susie's rummaging through all this stuff, my eye was caught by a card rack. A card rack. Specifically, this card. And I was drawn to the card, not because it's red. I was drawn to the card because of what's written on the front. I don't know if you can see it back there, so let me read it to you. This is what's written on the front of this card. You no longer have to worry about burning in hell. Well, that caught my eye. You no longer have to worry about burning in hell. So I went over there and I got that card. Thing cost three fifty. You no longer have to worry about burning in hell. And I open it up and it says this: What you did was really nice. Thanks a million. 
Do you get that, ladies and gentlemen? This is a very succinct summation of what the world thinks is the gospel. You do nice things. You don't have to worry about burning in hell. You do bad things. You're in trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, if no one has ever said this to you before, you hear it now. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the opposite of this. The gospel explained in this book is a story about a God who showed up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and has pulled off the miraculous. He pulled it off by dying as an innocent sufferer in the place of his guilty, needy people. And by his death, he defeated death. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father and awaits the arrival of his people. And unbelievably, masses amount of people aren't interested in that story. When you offer them this gospel or this gospel, They'll take this one every time. There's only one problem with this one. It's a lie. And it's being perpetrated by the same Satan that wanted to destroy Job and now wants to destroy you. The gospel is about an innocent sufferer whose name is Jesus Christ who died in our place. God showed up to bring a remedy for my sin. You know him? Father, um, we do pray that you will make very clear, very clear, the differences between a false gospel and a true one, and that every person in this room will know which of the gospels they hold on to, and that they might not miss the real thing, because they're so confused about world, the world's complexities. I pray, O God, that you will use Gracie Van Church to broadcast the beauty 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, um, make yourself real to those people in this room who have not yet embraced this Savior. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.